You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. My name is Owen Raskovich. In this episode, I'm by myself, it's little old me and you, just talking about property. I'm hoping to give you the 101 of economics for property, how you can think about the latest forecasts and why they're almost always wrong, what the forecasts and commentary mean to you as a renter, homeowner or investor or first home buyer, and some of the steps that you can take to make sure you're ready to pounce on one of these properties if they come up cheap in your neighborhood. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Raskovich, and in this podcast, I'm by myself, uh, mainly because of poor timing on my behalf with Kate. We had hoped to do a particular episode this week, which we're no longer doing, and that will be pushed back till next week. But this week, there's something really topical that's come up, and I figure it'd be worth a bit of a conversation about, and I guess trying to trying to mystify why uh, some of the things that we hear and, and read in the news about property prices really aren't that reliable, and kind of how you can best think about investing for the long term, the difference between lifestyle assets and, I guess, investments, and I guess the opportunity that arises from prices falling. So no doubt, if you own a property or if you're looking to buy a property, maybe it's this year, maybe it's next year, you've probably heard or even suspected yourself that property prices will likely fall or probably just stay flat uh, in 2020 and, and maybe even into 2021. One of the numbers that we've seen thrown around recently is a 30% fall. And some experts, otherwise known as pundits or commentators, have suggested that property prices could fall by up to 30% if 
the recovery from COVID-19 restrictions and lockdowns and the economic impact isn't as, I guess, dramatic or as quick as people would like. So I think the best source of information for this that I've come across so far is the Commonwealth Bank. And the Commonwealth Bank obviously is a bank that lends to households. So it kind of has, it has its finger on the pulse of, I guess, what's what's important and the things to think about. And they've got a good team behind them that you know, can make these types of assumptions and, and these models that suggest different outcomes for the property market. And one of the ones that I came across on the weekend when I was looking into this is they've kind of bucketed it into two scenarios. They've said, oh, you know, there's the recovery that happens quite quickly and the, the economy, the Australian economy recovers quite quickly. And then there's the other one where it doesn't recover so quickly. And I'll put this in the show notes, but I thought it makes sense just to take you through them and for you to kind of just contextualize how an economist or a property investor or even a politician might think about the difference in like what policies and what economic growth can have on property prices. And as you know, one of the things in my personal life is I'm actually looking at a house. So this is really relevant to me too right now. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking of buying a house, well, guess what? We're in the same boat. So you're probably looking at a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at, but hopefully I can give you a bit of a helping hand here. So according to CBA, they've done some modeling and obviously models are just models. They're not real life. They're representations of real life. So there's absolutely no guarantee that any model ever is an exact replica of what will take place in society. And especially when we're talking about the future, the only thing that's certain is uncertainty. So keep that in the back of your mind as I go through this. The first thing to note is that most property price forecasts are based loosely on two things. Um, The first thing would be the overall growth in the economy. And the way we measure growth in an economy is to talk about something called GDP or gross domestic product. You've probably heard us talk on the podcast about recessions and you've probably seen in the media with some big red flashing lights, recession, recession, recession. You've probably seen something like recession in 2020. And what that means is that we have two quarters or two lots of three-month periods because most economic data is produced in three-month blocks. So imagine two blocks or two three-month periods, which of course equals six months or half a year. So half a year of economic data, which suggests an economy has gone backwards. Now, when we say an economy has gone backwards, what we're talking about is the GDP, the gross domestic product. And what that measures is all of the, I guess, value created in an economy in a particular period. So, for example, if we say that the gross domestic product of Australia is going to fall by 5%, that means that all of the value created from all the products and services that we have inside the country is going to fall by 5%. Of course, again, these are forecasts, but the historical figures are, in actual fact, what happened. So, I mean, we know what happened in the past. The future is what we're concerned about. So in 2020, and I'm talking about calendar years here, so if you ever see CY when you look at a forecast, CY means calendar year and FY means financial year, or if you're in the US, fiscal year, they're both the same thing. But we're talking about calendar years, CY, 20. Commonwealth Bank has created two forecasts. The first one is a 6% fall. So if the economy falls 6% in 2020 versus 2019, And then in 2021, it recovers by 6%. So just about making up everything that it lost. And then in 2022, 
It grows another 3%, which would be more in line with our historical growth for the, for the economy. So we've got negative 6%, 6%, and 3%. That's the first input that Commonwealth Bank put into this, I guess, quick recovery scenario. The other thing that they look at is unemployment. Unemployment is a really important factor, as I'm about to get to in the podcast, because unemployment determines how much people can borrow. And how much people can borrow is based on their income, their ability to service a loan. If you go to a bank and you punch in borrowing power calculator and you get some web result, the first thing that you'll be greeted with is this thing that says, what's your yearly income? And that's because that is the single most important thing for any bank to consider when they lend you money. And so with gross domestic product, they've said negative 6%, 6%, 3%, and then unemployment, which is the other key variable, is 8.25%, that's what they're forecasting for calendar year 2020, 8% and 6.5%. So those are the two key inputs you need, gross domestic product and unemployment. And you can probably guess that the unemployment figure that they've forecast, which is 8.25%, 8% and 6.5%, is above average for Australia. So that might only be two or three percentage points above what we're used to in Australia, but that's two or 3% of around about 25 million people. So that's a lot of people out of the workforce. And that's two or 3%, you could say, on average, of houses that no longer have income. So what we're talking about here is only a minor uptick in this unemployment figure, but we're seeing um, a forecast drop, then rebound in gross domestic product. So what's the outcome under this downturn scenario? Well, Over the next three years, the estimated impact from this is an 11% fall. So it's not nearly as scary as the 30% fall that we've heard some experts or pundits put out in the media. 11%. But if you're talking about a house worth six or $700,000, that's a lot of money. So for example, a $700,000, a $700,000 house rather falls 10%. That's a 70% fall, a $70,000 fall. Sorry. So if you're in the market for a house that's worth $700,000. Maybe, just maybe, if this forecast is right, it could be $630,000 in six months or 12 months or three years from now. But again, this is only, I guess, just a forecast. It's just a model, so don't rely on it um, to make a big decision. As I'm about to get to, there's a better way to think about this. The other thing that Commonwealth Bank forecast is, or the other model, I should say, and scenario, is a prolonged downturn. And what they're talking about here is a recovery that takes a lot longer. So we've had coronavirus come through. It might take some time for all of these people to get back to work, to start feeling confident and having that full wealth effect, the effect that you feel wealthier than actually you are, and therefore you're more confident to go and buy things like TVs from JB Hi-Fi or a new couch from Harvey Norman. So in this second model, which is the one the media has jumped onto, of course, CBA's uh, experts have said, We are modeling for GDP, gross domestic product, to fall 7% in calendar year 20, then negative 8%, so it's still going backwards in calendar year 2021, and then 2.3% growth, so it's coming back a little bit, in calendar year 2022. So we've got negative 7%, negative 8%, positive 2.3%. That's obviously more negative than the first scenario, and it's coming back a bit slower. So you can see that's why they call it a prolonged downturn. The other figure, of course, is unemployment. And they're saying, if we do this same model, we're suggesting 9% unemployment, 
8.5% unemployment in the second year, which is calendar year 2021, and 6.5% unemployment still in calendar year 2022. So we have 9%, 8.5%, and 6.5% unemployment. You can see that those first two figures, if you've kept a, a good mental memory of this, if you've got something, maybe you've got a photographic memory, I guess you could apply to a podcast, but you can you can probably figure that these unemployment figures are a bit more negative. So they're you know, 9% unemployment is quite high for Australia. It's actually very high if it's sustained. And 8.5% is still quite high again. That means, you know, 9%, 9 out of every 100 people that, that should be employed aren't employed. Um, and of course, what's the outcome from this? So what's the outcome from this prolonged downturn? Well, according to CBA forecasts, it's a fall of 32%. Imagine if house prices fell 32%. To be honest... You know, they're the experts here, but I kind of think mm, maybe that's not where I'd be thinking house prices would go. I think Australians have a, an affinity for property, but they're not alone in calling for a pretty steep fall in property prices. And of course, this wouldn't be the first pretty dramatic sell-off in property prices in the world. You know, we've got places like Canada and the United States and the United Kingdom and many other Western countries and non-Western countries where house prices have fallen and they've fallen for quite some time. They've stayed low. So, you know, I guess this is the modeling that these experts have come up with. There are other experts that suggest maybe it falls 10%, maybe it doesn't fall until we get this six-month bank holiday where people can defer their loans and um, they're propped up by JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker, which are great things, by the way. Um, maybe, maybe prices don't fall for another six months. Um, in any case, what it is in the headlines is pretty scary. If you own a property, you're thinking, man, this is pretty scary. Like, imagine if my house fell 30%. Well, the problem that you have is when you have a property that, say, let's say it's a $600,000 property, it falls 30%, which off the top of my head is 180000 so you're down to 420000 If you've got a loan for $500,000 on a $420,000 house, that's what we call negative equity. And it's where a house is gone into the negative, meaning that the price, the current price that you could sell that house for is below the loan. And this is what the banks don't like because then even if they took the property off you and sold it, they wouldn't recoup all of their money. And obviously you as a home buyer or homeowner or person who lives in a house, you don't want to have someone to come in and take your home from you. So this is kind of scary, right? It's not just a financial consequence. It's also a lifestyle consequence. But I guess the good thing here is, and if I could provide some comfort, what I would say is that the chances of that happening are quite slim, and it's probably going to affect people mostly who have overstretched themselves. And this is the thing that we've been warning about for a long time, not just myself, but other people in the industry, is that no matter how good something seems, like an investment of shares or property, something can always go wrong. And, you know, this is something that has gone wrong. But the difference between shares and property is that property can be really hard to sell. So even if you do see this coming, it can be there's still a lot of costs involved to sell a property, and it also takes some time. That said, if you've been listening to our podcast long enough, which I'm sure you have, we always emphasize that when you buy an asset, so you're an investor, you're not a trader, you're not someone that's trying to flip things, you're not you know, one of these speculators, you're actually just someone who buys a house to live in it, or you make an investment in the share market for the long term. The good news is, if you've got your finances in order, which, was, which we've always emphasized, then this is actually probably more of an opportunity for you, 
And you know what? You probably don't need to sell your house, even if it is negative equity. Because if you can maintain the loan repayments, the bank's not going to take it off you. So we've got some pretty scary forecasts at the top of the show. And I'm sorry for that. If Kate was here, I'm sure she'd be a bit more lighthearted and, and kind of bring me back to reality. But those are the forecasts. And I've kind of said, well, you know what? If you own a home, you've got a good budget in place, uh, you're probably not in that much of a worry because, hey, you're going to hold this thing for a very long time, this thing being the asset. And you know what? You live in it. So it's it's kind of yours, right? You're not going to just up and leave because someone said in the media that your house is going to fall in price. And it's the same thing that we have with shares. You don't want to be a forced seller, right? If your shares fall 20% and you're willing to own those shares for 10 or 20 years, what does the 20% fall mean to you? The important thing is here that you maintain your serviceability and you pay off your loans. If you've lost a job, we've had a few episodes about how you can use JobKeeper or JobSeeker or all of these things, and you can use your emergency cash buffer. We've had some great uh, feedback on the podcast series of late from people who have saved up that cash buffer and now they're drawing on it because they have to, but they're not as stressed as they might otherwise be. And one final positive I might add in here is we are seeing an easing of restrictions. I have been looking at a house with my partner recently and we've looked at a few different houses and what we've found is that in the last week, at the time of recording, this this is Monday, in the last week, we've seen a massive uptick in the number of people that are attending open inspections because you can finally do open inspections. And I guess the other thing is there are more bids because people are more confident. So maybe, maybe these negative forecasts aren't as bad as what people say. The next thing I want to talk about is rental forecasts. So we've got house price forecasts, which seem kind of gloomy for people that own houses, but it's actually an opportunity for people that want to buy a house. So I guess I'm quite happy to uh, be a buyer in this market. But what about renters? People who you know pay a regular monthly payment to their landlord to, to live in their property. Well, the thing about this is, and it comes back to the supply and demand thing again, is that we've seen, according to some data and data from SQM, which is a, um, a financial in, uh, property market intelligence uh, organization, SQM say that rentals, uh, in terms of payments and rental rates, are down 5% in Sydney and 2% in Melbourne so far. And they estimate that Melbourne and Sydney will be the worst affected because I'm about to talk about something else, which is called migration and population growth. And also the types of jobs that are in Melbourne and Sydney are a little bit different to those that are in other states. But rental payments are down 5% and 2% in those two cities. And this is a good thing for renters, of course, because the reason this is happening, and this is me putting on my education cap here, is this is to do with supply and demand. What we're seeing is we're seeing a lot more properties come on the market that would otherwise not be rented. So if you own a property that's been vacant, or you've let it out for Airbnbs, you know, over the weekends, or you put it on stays and, and you get a bit of money here and there, but it's really just like a second home or you use it as a, as a holiday house. These people that own these properties are now putting them on, you know, realestate.com or domain or some of these big portals to rent them out permanently because they're like, hey, you know what we could really do with the cash. But the thing is, This has meant that it's an estimated 100,000 more properties hitting the market for rents. So at the same time as renters are thinking, "Mm, maybe I'll just move back home with my parents, we're also seeing more houses come to the market. And this is what we call a supply and demand imbalance. And ultimately, in economic theory, what happens is when you have a lot of supply and you don't have as many people trying 
to live in those houses, the prices must come down. So you have this, what we call an equilibrium. So we have a lot of houses and we have fewer people wanting to stay, fewer renters. That would mean that the renter has the bargaining power and can drive prices lower. And so that's what we're seeing so far. And you would imagine that if, or at least I imagine, that if prices and house prices come down and interest rates have fallen, some renters will be thinking, you know what, it's my turn now. I'm going to you know, go on the offensive and I'm going to offer a lower rental payment to get into a property and to rent that house for a year. And we even saw this with the place that we were renting. We could probably take it upon ourselves right now to offer a reduced amount of rent. Let's say you take $100 off your current rental payment and you say, I'm willing to sign a six-month contract now to pay $100 less. And then the landlord is thinking, oh, look, house prices might fall down. That means there's more rent uh, available in the market. Maybe I'll just accept that amount. And this is different to in the past five or 10 years when homeowners or, or landlords had the bargaining power. So they would say, we're going to increase rents this year by $100. So now the, the table has turned because there's more supply than demand. And so renters are thinking, you know what, maybe I'll get away with this. And if I don't, maybe I'll go to a new place that's cheaper. And so that's kind of where the rental market's going. Um, and then the final thing here is some of you may have heard that the government is well, tried to introduce a moratorium on rental evictions, meaning that the government said, please don't kick your, your tenants out of the house if they can't make their payments on time. Go to the negotiation table with your, with your tenant and landlords, let's try and cooperate here for the best outcome for everyone. And what that was interpreted by from investors perspective is maybe it's not a good time to invest in property because we might be forced to lower our rents just because the government is saying so. So these are the two markets that we have or the two considerations. We have the house prices, which are expected to fall. We also have rentals um, and the amount of rent um, that landlords can collect is also expected to fall. So I want to now talk about forecasts more broadly and I tell you what, I was on the news on the weekend. I was I was asked to answer some questions. And I tell you what, when you're asked questions on TV, you just give the generalized answers. You kind of just accept the status quo as much as you can because you don't want to ruffle too many feathers. And not many people, when you talk about finance stuff like this, not many people will sit down and listen to some analysts talk about, or an economist talk about prices and the different variables that go into making a forecast and, and really sit there and think about it for five or 10 minutes on their Sunday morning. What they'd rather do is just read the headlines, as I imagine you and I do occasionally, is just read the headline and go, yep, don't need to read that article. I got the idea. But basically, when a property expert conjures up a forecast, and I'm saying conjures because I'm picturing like a wizard with a cauldron and they're turning it around and they're going, they're throwing some frog legs in and they're, they're throwing some other things in there and they go, and then it goes poof. And then out comes this number. It's like 32% fall. Because I tell you what, from my side of the fence, what I know about investing in finance is that a lot of these forecasts are kind of just, you know, it's more art than science. That's for sure. That's how I could put it, I guess, respectfully. You know, you've probably heard someone come up to you and go, they've said, oh my God, did you hear about, you know, they said property prices are going to fall by 30%. And then you could respond with, who's they? And then your friend or whoever it would be, you just, they just say, I have no idea who they are. But you notice how people who don't really know what's going on, they say they, they can't really recall who came up with the forecast. They just read it in a headline or they heard it on the news. And of course, the news media is incentivized to tell us the worst case scenario because that gets the most clicks, that gets them more eyeballs on the TV sets in the morning. 
But I want to come back to making forecasts and I want to talk through four really important things that you can look for. And when you're just thinking about, you know, how people are coming up with this, the first is supply. If you're in an area, let's say you live on an island, an island is slightly smaller than Australia. If you're living on an island and there are only 10 houses available, chances are, even if there's coronavirus, there's still only 10 houses available. So the supply is constrained. If they're really nice houses, those 10 houses, chances are they're going to fall less than than houses in an area where there's a lot of new development, you know, they're cutting up blocks and, and there's just an ever-increasing number of dwellings for people to live in. So that's why you have a problem with apartments if you're an investor in apartments is that even if you have a fantastic apartment and you buy one of these things, in a year from now, there could be a huge skyscraper next door with another 1,000 or 2,000 apartments in it. And this is why we always caution people about buying off the plan because even if you commit to that investment in a few years, once the building has been built and your apartment is shiny and brand new, another one might have been developed. So, you know, that's the comes back to this supply thing. If there's more supply in the area that you're looking at, chances are those could be the areas that might be more affected. And that's just basic. I'm just basing that on basic economic theory. The second thing is demand. Now, I'm going to attach a little graphic to this podcast, and I really encourage you to take a look at it. And it's particularly for first homeowners. And I did this graphic along with our designer, Sophie. We created this graphic quite a few years ago, and then we've since included it in our free uh, Money Basics course, our A to Z Financial Independence, which, by the way, you should enroll in because we're trying to get a thousand students into it. Uh, But basically, this chart shows that even though property prices tend to go up over a very long period of time, if you got a line and drew it straight through the middle of all the data, what you would find is that there's a gentle, gradual increase in that line. And that shows you that over time, prices of property tend to increase. And the point is that that's the gradual trend, right? But sometimes you're going to, prices will be above that line. Sometimes prices will be below that line. But if you're an investor and you're looking 6, 10, 15, 20 years into the future, what you should be focusing is that line, that smooth, straight line that kind of goes up over time. Not the one that like, I guess, bounds and falls and peaks and troughs over and under that line over time. That's the, that one that peaks and troughs, that's the one you see in the media. The other one, which no one wants to show you because it doesn't gel well with the, the, the news headline, is that prices will increase over a very long period of time. You just got to zoom out a bit. But if you're a first home buyer or you're someone who is now buying property, this is the time when those prices might be below that trend line. And what that tells you is that maybe now is a good time to buy. Conversely, maybe six months, maybe a year ago, maybe 2007 is another good example. Maybe 2007 was not a good time to buy because maybe we were above that trend line. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. That's why we call them forecasts and models. They're not real life. They're not guaranteed. But maybe we're below that line. So I encourage you to go and have a look at that image that we drew up because that plays a really good uh, role in helping you understand where demand and supply and kind of like how that line moves around over time so you can think about it. But I want to stress one thing here is that when it comes to demand, there typically are only a certain number of buyers. So you don't need the entire Australian population to say, that's it, we're not buying houses for, you know, f- for prices to fall. Because typically, you know, you don't sell a house every day and, 
and things like that. But there's another thing that comes into play here is that if there are a lot of buyers for a high quality investment, which there almost always are. So if you're looking at a nice property that would be for, you know, a family of two or three in a few years and you want to fix up that property and it's on a good block and all that type of thing, chances are you're not the only one looking at it. So those prices are going to be less affected than those that are what we call not investment grade. So that's something to think about. The next thing I want to talk to you about is migration. And this is a really important thing that goes into a lot of these economic forecasts. Because of coronavirus, migration has ground to a halt. I just did the numbers and I'll attach a a resource in the show notes. But I did the numbers and over the last five years, an average of 177,000 people have migrated to Australia permanently. An average of 177,000. That's quite big. That's a big number. I mean, relative to the population, it's not huge, but relative to the number of houses that need to be built to house these people, that's a really important number. And that is a big reason why house prices in Melbourne and Sydney gradually go up over time. Another one might be international tourism and people coming for less than permanent stays, so students and that type of thing that they need housing. But at the moment, we've kind of got this you could call it a freeze on migration, which means that these people aren't coming to the country, but they will eventually. So that's a positive thing, but at the moment it's negative. So this is a kind of thing that you should also factor in when you're thinking about property prices and maybe where their direction goes over the time. The final thing is, and this is a really, I guess, nuanced thing, and it's really sounds really complicated, but it really de- depends. Property prices depend on the borrowing power of society. So how much Um, of their income is devoted to property versus and mortgage repayments versus other things in life. And what we've found in recent years is that as house prices have gone up, the average loan size has gone up, but interest rates have come down from over 17% in the 90s or late 80s to 0.25%. I'm talking about official interest rates from the RBA. You know, you've seen interest rates come way down. You've seen migration go way up and All of the time, even though the average loan size is getting bigger, so the media will try and maybe try and scare you with this figure to say loan to value ratios or loan to household debt or sorry, household debt to income. They'll try and throw out all these different variables. But what's really important to remember, and this is kind of more optimistic, is to think about the borrowing of people. So the household debt figures relative to income. So people are earning more these days. But the final fact that you need to think about is if people aren't earning income, i.e. unemployment is rising, how does that affect prices? And what you would likely find is in areas where there is a mass unemployment, such as WA during the resources fallout a few years ago, you see that prices have come down. So that's another thing that you could think about. And it's another thing that goes into property forecasts. But so what do I mean by all this? Like, Why does this even matter to me? I'm just a person that wants to own a home or I've got one now. Why are you telling me this, Owen? Well, I wanted to tell you this because you've already seen, I've talked about supply, I've talked about demand, I've talked about migration, I've talked about unemployment, I've talked about credit or like the ability to get a loan. All of these things combined means that forecasts are pretty much impossible to get right. And if you've got people screaming at you telling that they're negative, I mean, yeah, you can think of it as, yeah, you know what, prices probably are going to come down. But 
you know, they're never specifically right. They might be generally correct, which is what I try to be, but they're not specifically correct because no one can simply predict all of these different things going back to that person stirring the cauldrons, wizard, you know, trying to stir, a witch trying to stir up this cauldron and then come out with an answer like a magic potion. Here's where things are going. It just doesn't work like that because the world is an uncertain place. And if you're a homeowner sitting back reading these headlines, I would focus more on what the experts are saying. So what are they forecasting for supply? What are they forecasting for demand? Do they think migration will come back? How do they think credit or income and unemployment are going to move state by state? You know, these are the things that matter. Don't just take that big scary headline and read it and just assume that that's what's going to apply to you. Look at your area, look at the house you own, all of these different things come into play. And then after all of that, after you've considered all of that, all that really matters is can you make the loan repayments? And by the way, you know, the banks have particular incentives going on at the moment. We've talked about JobKeeper. Kate did a really good job of talking about JobSeeker. We've got the coronavirus supplements. Small businesses can apply for grants, usually at their state level. Uh, the ATO has its cash flow buffer. There are so many different things that might be able to help you, your small business, your employees, your family. You know, there's so many incentives available that can help see you through this period. And I guess mean that you don't have to be a forced seller. So that's kind of the, the, the good news story for today. And I wanted to walk you through that because it's a really important thing, not just for now, but into the future. Whenever you read one of these forecasts uh, about property, just remember that, hey, it may not be correct. And also that, you know, I'm over here on the stock market side of the fence. And I tell you what, the stock market forecasts are even worse. So it's not just property prices. This applies to everything. But the final thing that I kind of wanted to tuck on the end here is uncertainty like this, when things are pretty scary, if you take a long-term view, the further you zoom out, typically the more optimistic you'll become. And I want to show some green shoots starting to emerge. The first one is first home buyers. First home buyers have been banging on for years about how the boomers drove up prices and they couldn't get in the market and all this type of stuff. Well, According to the Commonwealth Bank's latest quarterly report, 15% of the people that are coming through and getting mortgages are first home buyers. That's up from 11% a year ago. That's almost a 30% increase in first home buyer activity. So that's a really good thing. Yeah, prices might come down, but they might only come down to where first home buyers can afford to buy. What we're also seeing is fewer interest only loans, meaning investors are also not using interest only loans. So they're switching over to principal and interest, which is a good thing because then it means they're paying, actually paying off the loan. Um, we're also seeing fewer investors in the market. So again, if you're a buyer, this is probably a good thing for you, longer term at least. Another thing that people have, I've, I've come across recently, which is kind of scary, I guess, is this idea that you can sell now and then buy another house. This might be a good idea in theory if you expect prices to fall, but just remember that there are frictional costs that go into selling a property. It's not like you log into your Comsec brokerage account and you click sell on your Commonwealth Bank shares. You know, to sell a house, you typically need an agent. You typically need to pay three to five thousand dollars to have your home on realestate.com or wherever it goes, and then you have to pay for taxes if it's not your primary residence and all these different things. So, I think the best course of action for most people who aren't really stretched, is to just definitely have a good budget, sit down with your partner, talk about you know how you can make savings, where you can save money. Um, maybe there's some things that you can sell in your house that you don't, don't need. We talk about selling some junk to get that emergency cash buffer up. All of these different things. And these are, by the way, covered in our free course. So just take that if you need any more ideas. Or just join one of those online 
Facebook communities or, or whatever, where there's some sort of free tips and strategies to save money and, and to make money. Final thing is, if you are hiring off a property, don't forget it's better to have a 20% deposit or more, or at least a guarantor, so you can avoid lender's mortgage insurance or LMI, which protects the bank, not the homeowner or not the investor or not anyone else. It protects the bank and it goes into your loan. That's If you can avoid it, that's a good idea. The other thing is to keep an eye out for stamp duty and all those different exemptions for if you're buying a house under a certain amount or if it's detached or if it's a new home. Next step is, obviously this is outside of the control of a lot of people, but we talk about a lot on the program, is just making sure your job's secure, finding out you know, if you do take out a loan to buy a property, can you maintain that that loan? As good as it says, you know, as good as that borrowing power calculator is and, and you know, whatnot, it's probably a good idea just to make sure to have a reality check, to talk to people older than you, talk to your parents, friends, cousins, uncles, brothers, aunties, whatever. The next thing is focus on the good properties. I've said in this podcast that if a property is investment grade, meaning it's on a good street, it's, you know, it's a pretty decent house, it's got a good land size and it's in the right location, close to hospitals, close to public transport, close to shops, all of these different things. I mean, it's all case by case, but if you're looking at an investment grade property or a good asset, as we talked about with Amy Lenardi on the podcast recently, I'll put that in the show notes. If you're focusing on good properties, you know, during this time, you're probably likely to get a better price than you might otherwise would. Um, and then the final thing is keep an eye on prices in your neighborhood. If you're looking for prices, don't just fall in love with the first one that comes across your desk. I tend to do this all the time. No matter if it's a if it's a property, if it's you know a bargain at the shop, don't be f- fooled by the the flashing lights and the shiny um, sales signs. Make sure that you you really do your research. You speak to some people. You get experts on your side, whether that's a mortgage broker, accountants, uh, buyer's advocate, any of these things. As long as you have your finances in check, um, you should be almost ready to go pretty quickly, and you don't need to. Uh, fall over yourself to rush out and make a bid. You you can act in a way that's, I guess, um, considered, but also excited. Okay, so that's kind of like my roundup of property prices. I've got a lot of stuff in the show notes. I tend to waffle on a bit in this because I really wanted to emphasize the point that, you know, even though these forecasts are pretty scary, there's a lot you can learn by just looking at the commentary more so than the number. The headline is probably the dangerous part, but all the stuff that goes into it is probably what you should be looking at. I've got some really good resources in the show notes. I've got a podcast I recently did with Pete Wargent. Um, we just did one in 2020 in April. It's a brilliant podcast. It goes through all of the latest economic data. I really encourage you to check that out. It's on our Investors Podcast series, but even though that one's a more advanced podcast than this one, please don't think like this is a really scary thing. Pete goes through some really interesting charts. He's a really interesting guy. And I'll, of course, put Amy Lenardi's Lenardi's podcast back in the show notes so you can go back and listen to Kate and my conversation with her. Another really good conversation. We're hoping to have Amy back on the podcast again soon. And of course, there's the um, the money podcast, uh, the money course that's in the, in the show notes too. So if you, if you need any of that information, please check it out. I've got the chart in there as well. Lots of good quality stuff to keep you busy. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. Uh, if you need to reach out, if you need feedback on, if you want feedback on anything, um, you know, property related, or you want to speak to us and make recommendations or ask questions, you can do that. You can hit us up at podcast at raskfinance.com or podcast at rask, that's R-A-S-K dot com dot A-U. Of course, you can find Kate, How To Money Australia, um, howtomoney.online, and you can find me at Twitter, Owen Rask, um, and on Instagram, Owen Rask A-U, and you can obviously visit us online. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with just little old me and you. 
Uh, Kate will be back next week with an episode, a brand new episode. It's a, it's a really exciting one. So thanks for tuning in and have a wonderful day. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.